Hello, hello, Kristen here. Just wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded before the podcast name change. If you hear any old terminology, that's why. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Notable Woman Podcast. I am overjoyed to bring you this conversation that I had with the amazing Kelly Rainey. Kelly is a director of domestic violence services, and in this episode, we talk about intimate partner violence. I wanted to let you know, so if this is something that you'll find upsetting, you can skip this episode and you don't have to listen to it. I do think that you could go to the show notes for resources. If you find this topic particularly upsetting, perhaps you find those resources useful. And I really didn't think I was going to be able to keep it together during this interview, and remarkably I did, but I think that the atrocities that families are facing because of intimate partner violence, it's one of the most devastating things that's facing our society. Everyone you know is affected in some way, whether they are being abused, they are an abuser, they know someone, someone in their family. And it's a really important topic. And I am so impressed with the work that Kelly is doing. It's got to be heart-wrenching. And she's at it every day, making a difference in these people's lives. And so I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'll be back at the end of the episode to fill in any gaps. Welcome to the Notable Woman Podcast. Today's interview is with Kelly Rainey. Kelly Rainey is the Director of Domestic Violence Services at Family and Children's Services of Central Maryland. She is also a graduate of Cedar Crest College, just like me. She has an amazing husband, Andrew, who she's been with since our days at the Crest. Today, she and I are going to be talking about intimate partner violence. Please join me in welcoming Kelly. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Kristen. I'm really excited to be here. Can you give us a little background into who you are, what you love, and what makes you tick? Sure. Well, I like helping people. (laughs) I guess I'm going to start there. Part of why I do the work that I do working with families that experience domestic violence is because after we finished at Cedar Crest, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I waited tables and I met a lot of different people at that time. And I thought, I just want to help people. And so I kind of decided at that point that I wanted to be a counselor, just didn't know what kind, and got to know a couple of different programs through the work I did in my grad program and learned about actually working with offenders of domestic violence. So that's kind of, I guess, what makes me tick, oddly enough, is the offender component and helping people, figuring out how to help people make healthy changes. What education and training did you get so you could be where you are today? I have a master's in community mental health counseling that I received from McDaniel College. But a lot of what I do currently, I actually got through training here in Maryland through the Maryland Network Against Domestic Violence, which is a large umbrella agency that does a lot of trainings for different small grassroots agencies that are in different counties. Awesome. Now, when you and I first talked about me wanting to interview you, You immediately knew that intimate partner violence was what you wanted to talk about. Now, why is that? Well, because it's something that affects all people. And I know that that sounds like really broad. I'm like, really, everyone? But everyone at least knows one person that has experienced intimate partner violence 
And it's actually one of the largest killers of women in our nation, but people don't talk about it. We still are afraid to talk about it. And I think that the opportunity to speak about it on your podcast will hopefully reach many more people than I do normally in my little trainings that I do throughout the state of Maryland. So what is intimate partner violence? So domestic violence in itself is about violence within a household. So domestic violence, while we typically think of a husband and wife arguing and possibly hitting each other, domestic violence can really also mean violence with children. Sometimes it's older children hitting their parents or when we have elder abuse. Those are all considered domestic violence. Intimate partner violence is about relationship violence where there's people who have been in a dating relationship or are married or even have just children in common. So typically meaning once had sex, that they are experiencing violence, that it's control, manipulation, and a dynamic of power and control within that relationship. Now, what are the statistics for intimate partner violence? We only know what's reported. And so historically, we know that a lot of people don't report violence that happens to them. What we do know that nationally, it's that one in four women will experience domestic violence in their lifetime and one in seven men. And that's just reported. So it is probably more like one in like every other woman and more like one in four men. So in reality, if we knew all the numbers of everyone who ever needed to report. And when it comes to dating violence, though, we know that the people who have been surveyed post a a violent relationship, 50% of women say that at some point between 16 and 24 age group, that they had experienced a violent relationship and about 40% of men in that same age bracket. So it's, like I said, it does affect almost all people at some point, whether it's directly or indirectly. Now, can you personify that stat for us? You know, again, I think it's about that anybody can be affected. So it's not about one particular race. It's not about one ethnicity. It's not about even one sexual identification. This is something that happens with heterosexual relationships, LGBT relationships, whether you have high income, low income. Throughout my career at Family and Children's Services, I have worked with countless people. I had a psychiatrist who was a client of mine. I had somebody who was a waitress who was a client of mine. I had somebody who had been working at a upper management business. And so it's like one of those things, again, where it's not about an education. It's not about an income. It's not even about the color of your skin. It's really just this type of violence affects so many people. I think that's a really great point that you could have an upper level degree and be seen as a total boss in your career and still be suffering from intimate partner violence. And you could also be someone who I know in some recent news stories of people who have been victims of intimate partner violence that ended in their deaths, that they were people that had families. And that their Mm -hmm. families were trying to help them, but it still, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, wasn't enough. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the questions that often comes up for victims is why doesn't he or she leave the violent relationship? And it's not that easy, even with it's easier, quote unquote, if there's supportive family members or friends who are there. But it's still very, very challenging. A lot of the victims that I work with after the initial crisis and they try to leave, they find that a lot of their supports 
tire of supporting them, which sounds awful, but you know, other people's lives move on. And yet you're still living in the fact that now you're by yourself, maybe with children, or you don't have the income to support yourself. So you might be living in a shelter. And these things don't just change for people automatically just because they leave an abusive relationship. It takes time to rebuild. I think both of these two national cases that came up recently, the one in Pennsylvania, the woman whose child had a horrible disease and had to have a lot of surgeries. So they were already sort of known by the news anyway. And her husband was abusive. She was taking the three children and leaving. He acted like he was okay with it, but he actually went and bought a gun. Her family was waiting for her at the new home she was going to move into. And he killed them all and their dog. And then there was also that family in Alabama where the woman had left and she was with her extended family. They, she had a restraining order and they had called the police and said that they thought he was outside. The police came, they couldn't find him, and then he just came back later and killed them all. I think there was maybe one child that was left alive. Yeah. I think it's a misunderstanding in our community as a whole. We often think that as soon as the victim decides to leave the abusive relationship, that he or she will no longer be in danger. And actually, it's statistically proven that victims who get ready to leave, their risk for lethality, for fatality, increases four times. So where it almost contradicts what we believe to be true about leaving a situation, which is often why when I'm working with victims, we ask them, does this feel safe to leave? When do you think it would be safe to leave? Let's safety plan if you actually want to leave the relationship. Oftentimes they tell me it's not ready. They're not ready because it's not safe yet. And so sometimes staying is safer than leaving. Which I think is a great point because I imagine that there are many people listening who think exactly what you said when we first started this conversation, which is, mm -hmm. oh, well, why don't you just leave? In fact, I'm pretty sure that I saw an article even maybe on CNN Today that said this is why victims don't leave. And also... Mm -hmm. There's been a lot in the news lately about sexual assault. And there was an article, I think, again, fairly recently in the national news about why people don't report sexual assault. And it's mm -hmm. sort of fascinating that you would have to explain why. But can you give us a little bit of an explanation why people don't report sexual assault or domestic violence? I guess really I could answer both in one time, because in both cases, there's a stigma surrounding it. First of all, is someone going to believe me? Oftentimes in domestic violence and intimate partner violence, you're told by the abuser that no one will believe you. No one's going to care. And after you hear that so many times, particularly because these abusers are typically very suave. They're very good in public. They're not known as hotheads. They're not known as odd or strange. They're usually well-known in their communities or just they have a lot of friends and they're well-respected for one reason or another in their community. For victims of sexual violence, I mean, it's very similar in the fact that they often are told that no one will believe them or if they were drinking or, you know, they were at a party, so they should have known, quote unquote. These are the messages our society tends to send victims of violence. It's funny, though, if you were robbed, let's say somebody took your purse on the train, no one would actually ask you why you were on the train. No one would ask you, you know, well, why didn't you hold your purse on your other arm? Or, well, why were you carrying $20 in your purse? Why did you have a purse to begin with? You know, that's exactly right. Like, and so it's fascinating that with other crimes of violence that aren't so intimate, we don't ever expect victims of those types of violence being of someone stealing from them or a stranger hurting them to explain themselves. So we do expect victims 
of sexual violence and intimate partner violence to explain themselves. And it's kind of unnerving. Yeah, there's a, again, recent story in the news. I believe it's a Canadian judge who asked a woman why she didn't keep her knees closed when she was getting assaulted. Yeah, there's all types of these and they pop up all over the place. Well, you know, you wouldn't have gotten aroused if you didn't want to have sex or this myth that you can't get pregnant if it's rape, which is just really baffling. I, I believe it was a Southern, some type of representative of us. I can't remember which one, but I was so mortified when I read the article. It was over the summer that that was a belief that he had, that it's not rape if you get pregnant because you must have consented because pregnancy equals consent. So there's a lot of rumors and myths about kind of victims and who has the right to say that they are a victim of violence. Now, what sort of signs should someone be looking for if they think that they have a friend who might be a victim of intimate partner violence? I think that one of the things that we often miss in our friends who start experiencing a violent relationship is them canceling plans on us. And of People cancel plans. I mean, I overbook myself to an inch of my life most days and I'll think to myself, oh, I just can't do one more thing. So sometimes, yes, it's like, I just can't go out. I just have to stop what I'm doing and, or stop doing more things. But when we see a repeated pattern with our friends, so if our friends are saying, oh, you know, I just can't go out tonight, maybe next time, or they're constantly canceling on girls night, or they stop returning your phone calls. Even though that makes it harder for us as friends to reach out to them because they kind of feel like they're dodging us, sometimes that's an indication of intimate partner violence. Typically, the offender does not want their victim to have friendships because that's more people that are going to be likely to pull the victim away from him, him or her. And, you know, I think that other things that we can look for, and it's not always about the physical marks. I think that any of us, if we saw a bruise on our friend or our loved one, we would ask what it was from. So it's more about the nervous behavior. It's more about not being coming to things that they would always attend, not being consistent in behaviors, suddenly having changes in wardrobes, possibly what they eat, things like that. Now, if someone recognized these signs in a friend, what should they do? I think it's important to try to reach out to your friend first. And try to stay in touch with your friend, even though that is really challenging because the offender is, or the abuser is going to be telling them to not call or they're going to be in trouble if they call you back. Each situation is unique, so it's hard to give an exact, I guess, an exact method for how to handle a situation. I always encourage and recommend that families call 24-hour hotlines that are local to them or even the national hotline just to kind of say, hey, this is my friend's situation. What can I do to help them? Because local agencies may be able to assist with supports or giving information to that friend so they can say, when your friend is ready, give them this number. When your friend is ready, then lean into that. Don't turn away when they're ready. How would someone find their local support system? So the National Network to End Domestic Violence is a great resource. You can go online and it's nnedv.org. And they're located in D.C., but they know all the resources throughout the United States. They actually also have a 24-hour hotline number, which I can give to you now, which is 1-800-799-7233. The cool thing about their website is that if you're on the website, 
and your abuser comes into a room, you can actually X out of it and it'll bring up something else on the computer, something very mundane and basic, and it will delete itself from your history uh, so that you can't be caught looking for help or looking for resources on domestic violence and intimate partner violence. That is amazing. Yeah. Very smart. I actually did an interview with Cheryl Helmick on an event that she does, a holiday fun run. And one of the places that they helped was Laurel House. So I was linking up to them and I saw that they have the exact same thing that they have, you know, click here if you need to get out of this site quickly. And I was really impressed that that technology exists. That's awesome. Yeah, it's very, very smart. And for agencies that are specific to domestic violence, it's really a useful thing for the website just so that way it doesn't endanger. The goal is to keep people safe and to give them information, not to put them in more danger. Now, what if someone listening to this is a victim of intimate partner violence? What would you say to him or her? That's a really good question. You know, I wouldn't actually say that much. I just would say that when they're ready, when they're ready to talk to somebody, not ready to leave, not ready to make some type of giant change in their lives, but they just want to talk to somebody, if they want to feel heard, to reach out to the national network or get their local hotline and call somebody. I think that this is a very isolating experience for folks and that it's nice to know that there's a way to reach out and to just have an anonymously even have somebody hear your story and maybe give you some feedback. One of my, I guess, favorite parts of my job really is when I get to connect to the clients and get to hear their stories and just experience that moment of time with them and just say, wow, that sounds really scary. I hear that you sound frightened right now. And just acknowledging to them that it's valid and it's real because so much of their lives that is violent and horrifying and just downright cruel is minimized by their abuser. So that's what I would do. You know, I worry a lot about raising my son to be kind and empathetic. And I feel like that is really huge for me. I want him to respect animals. I want him to respect women. I want him to respect people with disabilities. And I just want to know, what do you think are the root causes of intimate partner violence? I think permeable families. And we have a lot of that, not just in the United States, but across the world. The families where we don't have strong parent supports, where we're not showing healthy relationships in our homes. I personally grew up in a situation that wasn't super healthy. I was really lucky to have my grandparents that stepped in. And so I've had really good role models because of that. I got to see what it means to have conflict because conflict isn't the problem. We want to teach our children that conflict is okay and not agreeing and being upset and angry is okay. But how we handle that, and particularly how we handle it with people that we love, is really, really important. And so I think that those are the things that, aside from, yes, empathy and recognizing that, you know, if you hurt somebody's feelings, what that is like and why that hurt, but also teaching them to apologize and also correct the behavior, teaching them to express themselves and say, I'm angry, or I'm hurt, or I'm lonely. Those are all very valid feelings. And you can get your needs met oftentimes faster by expressing them and then finding a solution with your loved one. Now, this is not a world that is new to you, but 
it certainly has been hitting me a lot more recently. I feel like it's almost nonstop that I'm reading a story about someone whose life has been ended by intimate partner violence. And is it an epidemic? Is it worse now? Does it just feel worse now because we hear about it more often because of the way that globalization works? What's mm. what's going on? Well, so I'm going to tell you that intimate partner violence is not a new thing. Ivan the Terrible killed all of his wives when he was done with them, particularly when they didn't bear him a son. And so I know that that's kind of a strange analogy or strange example, but it just shows throughout history. I mean, we have the rule of thumb because you could beat your wife with a switch no thicker than your thumb if she displeased you. And so part of what's happening in our world is that we're actually waking up and we are actually becoming more aware of these problems and the media and the fact that we all are connected to each other in so many ways all day long. We have the ability to hear so much more about what's happening around us. And I think women are getting mad and I think that that's good. And, you know, and, and I don't mean that we, you know, we should be, again, it's like that I'm a very peaceful protest type of person. So I think that it's important that we say, Hey, I don't like that. Or, Hey, you can't speak to my sister that way, or you can't talk to my loved one that way. And that we defend each other in that sense. You know, it's only been since 1990s that the Violence Against Women Act has even been a thing, you know? And so I think that we're really just coming into an age where people are saying enough is enough. And it's not just that she's your sister or she's somebody's mother or she's somebody's daughter. We're humans and it's time to make this a community issue and it's time to bring awareness to it. Human rights are women's rights. Women's rights are human rights. That's I, right. I <laughs> totally agree. And I think that that's fabulous. And it, it certainly, as a student of literature, being an English major, I have read more books about people getting beaten by their partners than I can mm. possibly tell you because it's ingrained particularly in British literature, which is mostly what I studied. But it really does seem that people are fighting back and people are trying. I mean, in both of these cases, both of these news stories that I mentioned earlier in this episode, both of these cases, these families were helping these women. Unfortunately, right. you know, when a victim is trying to leave is the most dangerous time for them, but their families were trying to help them. And yeah. they're in this case of the second family in Alabama, they did have the police involved. They did have restraining order in So place. restraining orders and protective orders aren't magic, however. I mean, they're great to have <laughs> and they're and really important. And I always encourage clients to get them, but oftentimes clients let their guards down or victims let their guards down right when they get them. But we know that I find that the most effective way to help or serve somebody who's getting ready to leave is maybe not necessarily to put them with their family or loved ones, but to have them stay in a safe house in an undisclosed location for a period of time. Actually, even with the protective order, that way they're not found out by the abuser. Them and their children can have respite for a couple of days, as long as they really need to in order to reset before they go stay with their aunt. Usually allowing some time to pass and allowing things to settle, depending on the significance of the violence, too, that happened, that transpired to get the protective order. I would love to find out a little bit more about this. And maybe someone who's listening, they would appreciate hearing this part as well. So if someone comes to you. And can you sort of talk us through the process of someone reaching out to you versus someone getting out of the relationship? I can only speak a little bit to what happens in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing, too, is that protective orders or restraining orders are different state by state. So it's important to kind of, if you're looking into that, depending on where you are, definitely contacting your local agency 
because they can actually walk you through it. But if somebody comes to my program and says they're ready to leave, we don't ask that they have a protective order first. But if they're interested in that, there's definitely a paperwork process. We go to the courthouse with them and help them fill that out. And there's some ground rules to getting a protective order. Protective orders, you have to have had violence that occurred in the last 30 days. And in Maryland, it's a preponderance of the evidence, which means it's not the highest that it could be, the highest standards, but it's the second highest standard. Most states actually have a very low standard for that because we want people to be safe. I don't know why Maryland is high. It used to be higher. It was the highest standard. Anyway, I digress. I could talk about that forever. But protective orders, people can use that in order to get, you know, possibly the abuser off their property, to remove them uh, for a period of time. People can use it to regulate visitations for children. They can use it to get the family vehicle, because in some cases it's not in their name. It might be in their abuser's name. Really, the protective order, if it goes into place and it stays in place for a longer period of time, they can get certain things that they need. The One of the best benefits to it is they actually, in Maryland, remove their guns. So if a final protective order is in place, guns are removed from the home, which we find is very, very important considering the fatality that occurs with weapons across the nation. Isn't the stat on that is something like if a woman is being abused and her abuser has access to guns, she's something like eight times more likely to be killed? That's right. Yes. Really incredible. And in fact, there's something called a lethality assessment program. It's a protocol that we use in Maryland. And actually, the Maryland Network Against Domestic Violence are the ones who've trained my agency on how to use it. But one of the questions on that 11-question protocol is, does he or she have a weapon? Do they have easy access to one? And that is exactly why, because we know the risk is eight times greater if there's a weapon in the home. But for those who choose to come to our safe house, we open it to anyone and everyone. It's not for just women and children, although that's a a myth, because like I said before, you know, muscadons does also affect men. And so we offer that safe haven for people to come to. We just do a brief assessment because we have to, quote unquote, prove they're in danger, which if we're offering it to them, that means that they are. And then we place them, they get their own room in the house. We help provide food for them. We give them sheets. We give them towels. We provide all their necessary items, shampoo, conditioner. Now, do you have any nonprofits you recommend that any notable women interested in this cause can check yes, out? Yes, absolutely. So first and foremost, I would love you to check out Family and Children's Services, which is the agency that I work for. And so we're www.fcsmd.org. Family and Children's Services serves domestic violence victims in Carroll County and in Baltimore County. But we do a number of different programmings um, for the whole family, actually. We serve from Head Start all the way to elder programming throughout five different counties in Maryland. So please feel free to check us out. I will definitely put a link in for you as well. Thanks. Also, there's the One Love Foundation, and their website is, I believe it is joinonelove.org. In 2010, Yardley Love was a college student who was in school in Virginia, and Several weeks before graduation, she was killed in her dorm room by her ex-boyfriend. Yardley's family was from Baltimore County, and her family started this organization to kind of make awareness and a movement to help adolescents and teens learn about dating violence. They actually are an agency that we partner with, and we work hard to help them get their message out there. 
So you guys should definitely check them out. And of course, the Maryland Network Against Domestic Violence. They're another really amazing program, as well as the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Thank you, Kelly. I will definitely include links to all of those sites. Now, what would you say is the most fulfilling part of your work? Oh, well, I think the most fulfilling part, honestly, is just connecting to people. Because I don't really believe that I actually make people change. I think that that's kind of a silly thing to assume. Of course, I think when I got into counseling, I thought, oh, I'm going to help all these people change and it's going to be great. But that's not really accurate. I love connecting to folks. I love hearing about their lives. And not just my clients, but my staff as well. I really enjoy being connected to people and learning through people. And I always leave a session for the client or even a supervision with one of my staff, knowing a little bit more about myself too, which is really an awesome experience to have. Yeah, just connecting to people. And what would you say is the most challenging part of your work? Oh, when they go back. (laughs) I think that it's, we have recently in my programs, and this happens occasionally, we've had a number of very serious cases, strangulations, really, really violent cases and where we have, with the victim's permission, attempted to maintain their safety and help them get away from the abuser. And they've taken them initially. And then sometimes when they go to, and they choose to reunite with the abuser, that's their choice. They have free will. We will always reopen and open our program back up to them if they ever would like to leave again. But it's heartbreaking when you know that someone's returning to a very violent situation and there's absolutely nothing you can do for them. If someone wants to make the world a better place, just like you do by working in domestic violence services, what advice would you give them? Oh, well, I think that in order to decide what you want to do, you should volunteer first, do an internship. That's actually one of the things that I did initially was I shadowed the offender groups and did internships with them. That's how I really would know I wanted to make a difference with families. It's hard work. And so you have to be mindful that you'll need to take extra good care of yourself. But yeah, I mean, if there's somebody out there who is looking to make a difference, I say to figuring out how to get that internship, that volunteer work, that connection first to see if it's something that you can sustain. Now, what would be the biggest assumption that people make about you? That I hate men. (laughs) I love men. You obviously have a wonderful husband. (laughs) I do. I do. No, I think that it's one of those, you know, I'm a feminist. I'm lucky because my husband also is a feminist. I think people don't know what that word means. And so I think that when people meet me and they hear what I do, the automatic assumption is that I I hate men. And that's not true. Um, In fact, I... I like, you know, all people. I want everyone to be safe and have good relationships. And so I think that that's a fascinating assumption. I've heard that a few times about people who work with domestic violence victims. And, you know, not true. Do you have a book you would love to recommend to the Notable Woman audience? Absolutely. I actually have two. There's a book by Lundy Bradkoff, which is called Why Does He Do That? It's actually an older book, but it's really great. It talks about the cycle of violence and how offenders think. And it's the first book I read when I started working for Family Children Services. And it really gave me some interesting insight into abusive patterns. 
The other book is by Jennifer Clement and it's Prayers for the Stolen. And it's remarkable. I'm actually just finished reading it. And it's about folks who have dealt with sexual violence and have been in human trafficking, which is a little bit different than kind of what we've been talking about tonight, but does affect intimate partner violence and kind of what people are experiencing currently. Excellent. Thank you so much. I will put both those in the show notes as well. Great. Now, what would be one takeaway you want people to get from this podcast episode? That intimate partner violence is a community issue. If you see somebody assaulting someone, you should say something. A couple months ago in the beginning of summer, actually, next to my office, there's an alleyway and we heard a lot of yelling. So me and a coworker went outside and there was a man beating his girlfriend in the alley. And so we called 911 and stood in the alley and I kept saying, I can see you. I can see you doing that to her. And I didn't know her at the time. And, you know, I think one of the things that helped the situation was that, you know, we stayed there. And of course, I didn't want to intervene in the sense of getting myself injured, but I stood witness to it. And, you know, we were able to get her help. And so I think that making that awareness, you know, even if it's just you don't want to be seen yourself, but calling 911 or, you know, encouraging folks to support their local shelters by donating something or however you would like to give to make this awareness known. I don't know. I think that that's what I'd like the takeaway to be from this. I think that's an excellent point. And I know that, you know, I live in New York City. And so I experience all sorts of things all the time. And I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do something and I could do something. So I am always calling 911 saying, I hear yelling in the street. Yeah. It sounds really bad. It's for yeah, And that's all you have to do because you don't have to go downstairs, but calling and making someone aware because oftentimes I think we just think, oh, that's a personal problem. I shouldn't get involved in it. And that's a very dangerous moment for somebody. And, you know, we can make a difference. We could save a life. Preach, my friend, preach. <laughs> All right, lady. Now, if people wanted to connect with you, what should they do? If they want to connect with me, they should email me. Do you want me to give you that email? I would love that. Great. Email me at k-r-a-i-n-e-y at f-c-f-m-d dot o-r-g. Excellent, lady. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me today. I really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. I think this is a really important issue. And I also just want to say, you are amazing that you do this work. And it's oh. so important. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks for the opportunity to speak on your podcast. You're doing awesome things too. Getting the word out there is a great thing. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to that episode with Kelly Rainey and myself. I think it's really important that Kelly pointed out that a lot of families that are trying to help their loved ones who are victims of intimate partner violence should be letting them go to a safe house instead of taking them themselves. I think that's really important to recognize. I really want to point that out. And a lot of the really high profile deaths that we've seen as a result of intimate partner violence in the recent news climate that didn't happen and we can see what the end result was. And so she really stressed that. And I wanted to make sure that we highlighted that point. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you. I love bringing these episodes to you. Thank you for listening. I'll be back with you again.
next week. Bye for now.